Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and I am once again recording in the middle of the night, desperately trying to stay awake. Maybe it's the time, maybe it's this weird respiratory bug I've had all month, or maybe, just maybe, it's all the reading I've been doing on this week's topic, another historical treatment for a cough that just keeps hanging around. Laudanum. You know how when somebody yawns, you have to yawn too? You just did, didn't you? <laughs> well, that's a bit what this feels like this week. Lyrical descriptions of historical highs have a way of getting into your head, and as beautiful as some of these passages are, the suggestion of sleep might make you sleepy, so if you are sensitive to that kind of thing, maybe don't operate heavy machinery while you're listening to this, okay? <laughs> now, this episode is also going to touch on issues of addiction, drug abuse, murder, and suicide briefly, so if you feel like these things are triggering, then please feel free to catch up with us next week instead. There's nothing wrong with that. As for everybody else, well, let's see where this goes. Dr. John is out sick this week, so the episode is going to be a little bit shorter, but if you're not familiar with laudanum, it'll completely change the way that you look at period dramas. If you're at all into 19th century literature or historical movies, you've probably come across laudanum. The little glass bottle on the nightstand, in a pocket, or otherwise connected to a crime scene immediately suggests murder, suicide, or late-stage tuberculosis, but this over-the-counter opiate was once as common as Tylenol. Although the medicinal properties of opium have been known for thousands of years, it was 16th century Swiss alchemist Paracelsus who first turned it into laudanum. He discovered that when you mix it with alcohol, it becomes a far better painkiller than when you mix it with water. Imagine that. Taking the idea and running with it, he mixed it with crushed pearls, musk, saffron, and ambergris, which is essentially an extremely expensive waxy waste from the intestinal tract of the sperm whale. I know, I don't get it either. Anyway, he called this unholy cocktail laudanum, which is from the Latin word laudare, which means to praise. Now thought of as primarily a Victorian drug, laudanum first reached England in the 1660s when physician Thomas Sydenham developed his own recipe. While Sydenham left out the ambergris, small mercies, the base remained the same. Alcohol and opium proved to be a potent cure-all, and in his Medical Observations Concerning the History and Cure of Acute Diseases, which was published in 1676, he gave it the praise Paracelsus had predicted a century before. Laudanum took off during the 18th century, and by the 19th it could be found in almost every home in Britain. 
Although the recipe was flexible, its base remained that combination of opium and alcohol, sometimes up to 50% alcohol per bottle, in fact. Interestingly enough, despite the high alcohol content, it was cheaper than wine or gin. As it was technically a medication, it wasn't taxed like other kinds of alcohol. Its relatively low cost absolutely contributed to its success. Cheaper than a visit to the doctor, it was available over-the-counter or could be made at home, and it was used to treat everything from chronic pain, heart disease, and cholera to mood swings, depression, and insomnia. Unsurprisingly, laudanum was also recommended for a whole host of women's ailments. Marketed as women's friend or mother's friend, it was used for menstrual cramps, pregnancy pains, and hysteria, and it was even given to babies to help them sleep. Charles Kingsley described opium addiction in Alton Locke in 1850 as elevation, a particular problem of women. Now, he wrote this in a regional dialect, and the narrator should not sound like they're from Minnesota, but you'll get the idea, I hope. Here goes. Oh, ho, ho, you go into druggist's shop on market day in Cambridge, and you'll see the little boxes, dozens and dozens already on the counter, and never even a man's wife goes by but what calls for her penny of elevation to last throughout the week. Oh, ho, ho, well, it keeps the women folk quiet, it does, and it's mortal good against acute pains. But what is it? Opium, bore alive, it's opium. It keeps the women folk quiet. God, I hate the Victorians. Anyway, there were several different varieties of laudanum available, and a lot of them could be made at home. It was naturally very bitter, so sweeteners like honey and spices were added to improve the flavor. Sydenham's recipe from 1660 was still in use by the 1890s when it was published in William Dick's Encyclopedia of Practical Receipts and Processes. Sydenham's Laudanum. This is prepared as follows. Opium, two ounces. Saffron, one ounce. Bruised cinnamon and bruised cloves, each one dram. Sherry wine, one pint. Mix and macerate for 15 days and filter. 20 drops are equal to one again of opium. Dick's Encyclopedia has lots of recipes for homemade laudanum and even more for other remedies containing opium. As nice as cinnamon and cloves sound, pumpkin spice season is nearly upon us, after all, by the 19th century, laudanum could also be mixed with mercury, ether, chloroform, hashish, or belladonna. If it didn't kill you, it would certainly make you see some very interesting things. For some people, of course, that was rather the idea. Not only was laudanum a potent painkiller and cough suppressant, but it induced deep sleep and vivid dreams, gave you feelings of euphoria, and it was addictive as it was cheap. It was also taken recreationally or mixed with other alcohol like absinthe to stimulate creativity among artists. Some notable fans of laudanum include Charles Dickens, Bram Stoker, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, George Eliot, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, and Rossetti's wife, model Elizabeth Siddle, who tragically died of a laudanum overdose. Although generally considered safe, there were no limits on its sale, so it was easy to obtain and just as easy to overdose. It was used for all kinds of things, 
but it primarily affects the lungs as a respiratory depressant, which means that it's great for coughing, but not so great if you take too much. Overdosing meant that breathing would gradually slow to a stop, resulting in hypoxia, coma, total respiratory arrest, and eventually death. Tragically, the people experiencing this would be in no position to call for help. From their point of view, they would just fall asleep and never wake up. Because of its ready availability and potent toxicity, laudanum has appeared as a murder weapon and method of suicide in literature for more than 200 years, popping up in everything from Frankenstein and the picture of Dorian Gray to Interview with the Vampire and even Bridgerton on Netflix. But as ever, the truth is always more interesting, and none of these fictional accounts come close to describing the experience of laudanum addiction quite like Thomas de Quincey. Plenty of people have issues with addiction, but not everyone can say that theirs led to the birth of a new literary genre. If it was going to happen to anyone, it had to be Thomas de Quincey. Born to a merchant family in Manchester in 1785, he had an interesting upbringing. He was prone to illness as a child and spent his early years in isolation. His father died when he was eight, and not long after, his mother added the D to De Quincey to spiff it up a bit. Then she sent Thomas to the ultra-posh King Edward School in Bath. Apparently a master of mixed messages, she later took him out of that school after a few years and moved him to a worse one because she didn't want him to get a big head. Climbing the social ladder through affectation while simultaneously staying firmly in your place requires Olympic-level mental gymnastics, and the British have been taking home the gold in that for years. As a teenager, Thomas ran away and spent a couple of years on the streets of London, homeless. Still, he was an excellent student and a gifted writer, and he eventually made it to university and later found work as a journalist and a literary critic. His issues with chronic pain plagued him all his life, however, and just like today, he started taking opiates for pain management via small doses of laudanum. Those doses became larger and more frequent, of course, and by the time he was in his 30s, he had a full-blown habit. First published in 1821, Confessions of an English Opium Eater was Thomas de Quincey's autobiographical account of his laudanum addiction, first published in the London Magazine. It was so popular that it was soon published in book form and it made his name as an author. You can see why. Describing a laudanum high, he writes, The sense of space, and in the end, the sense of time, were both powerfully affected. Buildings, landscapes, etc., were exhibited in proportions so vast as the bodily eye is not fitted to conceive. Space swelled and was amplified to an extent of unutterable infinity. This, however, did not disturb me so much as the vast expansion of time. I sometimes seemed to have lived for seventy or a hundred years in one night. Nay, sometimes had feelings representative of a millennium passed in that time, or, however, of a duration far beyond the limits of any human experience. I know, right? <laughs> he also has a callback to Sir Walter Raleigh's History of the World. While Raleigh wrote of just and mighty death, 
De Quincey took it further and made it weird. Oh, just subtle and mighty opium, that to the hearts of poor and rich alike, for the wounds that will never heal, and for the pangs that tempt the spirit to rebel, bringest an assuaging balm. Eloquent opium, that with thy potent rhetoric stealest away the purposes of wrath, and to the guilty man for one night givest back the hopes of his youth, and hands washed pure of blood. <sighs> Always a good start, right? De Quincey was popular in his own time, and his honest, lyrical descriptions of the ups and downs of his addiction inspired other literary greats like Edgar Allan Poe and Charles Baudelaire, and led to the popularization of addiction literature that continues to this day with modern classics like Train Spotting. Confessions was so popular that at the time it was blamed for causing laudanum addiction among De Quincey's readers. The book was certainly compelling, and laudanum continued to appear in literature for the next hundred years. In the picture of Dorian Gray, Oscar Wilde uses it to show Dorian's descent into depravity, which this scene in an East End opium den uh, shows the effects of laudanum from an observer's perspective. As Dorian hurried up three rickety steps, the heavy odor of opium met him. He heaved a deep breath, and his nostrils quivered with pleasure. When he entered, a young man with smooth yellow hair, who was bending over a lamp, lighting a long, thin pipe, looked up at him and nodded in a hesitating manner. Dorian winced and looked around at the grotesque things that lay in such fantastic postures on the ragged mattresses, the twisted limbs, the gaping mouths, the staring, lusterless eyes fascinated him. He knew in what strange heavens they were suffering, and what dull hells were teaching them the secret of some new joy. Strange heavens aside, laudanum was not a friendly substance, and reports of its ill effects became increasingly common. In 1889, the Journal of Medical Sciences published what was said to be an anonymous letter by the wonderful title of Confessions of a Young Lady Laudanum Drinker, which describes her experience of addiction. She writes, It got me into such a state of indifference that I no longer took the least interest in anything and did nothing all day but loll on the sofa reading novels, falling asleep every now and then and drinking tea. Occasionally I would take a walk or drive, but not often. Eventually my music I no longer took much interest in, and I would play only when the mood seized me, but felt it too much of a bother to practice. I would get up at about ten in the morning and make a pretense of sewing, a pretty pretense, for it took me four months to knit a stocking. My memory was getting dreadful. Often, in talking to people I knew intimately, I would forget their names and make other absurd mistakes of a similar kind. I was constantly losing the keys or forgetting where I had left them. I forgot to put sugar in puddings, left things to burn, and a hundred other things of the same kind. While this anonymous writer did recover, laudanum addiction was difficult to beat. People became tolerant to it quickly, and the best way to recover was by slowly tapering the doses down. And people did want to recover. 
Apart from the serious respiratory problems it could cause, laudanum could also mess with your digestion, cause constipation, depression, and itching. Still, for most people, laudanum must have felt like a godsend. Disease, poverty, and hunger were widespread, doctors were expensive, and chronic diseases like tuberculosis spread unchecked. Those lucky enough to be employed suffered through very long hours in terrible conditions to earn starvation wages. I wonder what that's like. Even for the wealthy and well-to-do, Britain was cold, wet, and overrun with the kind of discomforts that made laudanum seem like a good idea. Menstrual cramps, insomnia, anxiety, nerves, cough, stomach upset, cholera, tuberculosis. If one drug could treat them all, and that drug happened to be miraculously affordable and so common that there was no real stigma attached to it, well, there was no reason not to rely on it from time to time. Laudanum is still in production today, but it is no longer available over the counter, thankfully. Now referred to almost exclusively as tincture of opium, it is listed as a Schedule II substance due to its highly addictive nature and it is used for stomach ailments, pain, and to treat infants born to mothers with opioid addiction. If you or anyone you know is struggling with opioid addiction, contact the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's helpline at 1-800-662-HELP for information and treatment referrals. This week's episode of Dirty Sexy History was brought to you by the incredibly dark Victorian murder mysteries I grew up watching with my grandmother, the late great Romaine, who would have liked this episode but wanted more murder in it. I get it, that's fair. So, shout out to my honorary uncle, Hercule Poirot, as well as our fabulous patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Andy Christopher, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, and Jessica Miller. Thank you all so very much for your support. We appreciate it more than we can say. If you would like to support the show, check us out on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. Please rate, review, and subscribe because it really helps us out. As always, you can find us through our website at dirtysexyhistory.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram where we will post the photos from this week's show. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast, and this episode was written, produced, researched, and bedazzled by me, Jessica Cale. My sources today include Anonymous, Confessions of a Young Lady Laudanum Drinker, The Journal of Medical Sciences, January 1889, Victoria Barrage, Victorian Opium Eating, Responses to Opiate Use in 19th Century England, Victorian Studies, 21-4-1978. Horace Ainsworth Eaton, Thomas De Quincey, A Biography. Thomas De Quincey, Confessions of an English Opium Eater. William B. Dick, Encyclopedia of Practical Receipts and Processes, 1890. Andre Dinieco, Victorian Drug Use, The Victorian Web. Charles Kingsley, Alton Locke. Edward O'Reilly, Laudanum, A Dose of the Nineteenth Century. Liza Picard, Victorian London. Thomas Sydenham, 
Medical Observations Concerning the History and Culture of Acute Diseases, 1676. Oscar Wilde, The Picture of Dorian Gray, 1890. Short but sweet. That's it for us for this week, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll be back next week with a longer episode that will hopefully be more cheerful. I really got to stop promising there. (laughs) All right. See you guys next time.